take your Bible with me, please, this morning, and find the book of Daniel. Turn to the book of Daniel, please, the fifth chapter. This morning, your favorite book is the book of, thank you very much, fifth chapter. Oh, we love this book. We love Daniel. We love the man Daniel. We love the book of Daniel, how it unfolds, the prophetic plan of God unfolds it to such great, beautiful depth for us. But I want us to come to Daniel chapter 5, if we could, this morning. And this is an interesting chapter. All of Scripture is interesting and all of Scripture is profitable for us. But in Daniel chapter 5, we're given the historical events of one day in the life of a Babylonian king. One day, all of Daniel chapter 5. As a matter of fact, it is the very last day of this one day of this last king of Babylon, the last day of his life. And in this chapter, if you've never read it, we'll read it this morning in a most dramatic way, to say the least. God deals with a king and makes himself known to his people and to the world. In fact, we actually can take this chapter 5 and we can nail it down to the particular year, 539 B.C., to the particular month of October, and it's either the 13th or the 14th day that what happens in this particular chapter. It centers around, though not exclusively, this man, look at chapter 5, verse 1, this man, Belshazzar. He's the oldest son of the king who's actually reigning at this time, whose name is Nabonidus. Nabonidus reigns from 556 to 539 at this time. And of those 17 years that this king Nabonidus Nabonidus is reigning, the bulk of the time he is outside of the kingdom. Over 10 years he's gone in the Babylonian kingdom outside of the great great city of Babylon, and he has an army with him. He's regaining some of the turf that belongs to the great kingdom of Babylon, and he's also spending time building a great memorials to himself and the greatness of the kingdom of Babylon. And so the bulk of the time of the way that Nabonidus is gone This king, his son, his firstborn, Belshazzar, is king there at the great city of Babylon. And what's going on at this time in this one-day record that we're given in Daniel chapter 5 is that the great Medo-Persian army is outside of the gates of the city. And they have been there for several months They have taken ownership of a great bit of Babylon's turf all around the city of Babylon. And now they've set siege upon this particular great city. And at the same time, we're going to read how this Belshazzar has got some... Well, look at verse 1. Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles... And historians tell us that probably a great number of those 
particular leaders or nobles, had some turf outside of the city of Babylon, but now they've come there for safety. And the city of Babylon is something else. It's just one of the great seven wonders of the world. They had great, huge, double-walled Ephesus around the city. They had food stored that would last for decades. And they didn't have a problem needing water because the great Euphrates River literally ran through, under the wall, and through the city of Babylon. So they were... uh, They were set. They were safe, so to speak. And this great king now, in light of that, some say to build morale of the people because a great army is outside of the walls, he's throwing a party. Throwing a party. And in the midst of all of this that's going on, we have this one day, and what happens with this king and how God reminds us again how he works in his, his world. And I'm going to read the whole chapter. And I'm going to preach on the whole chapter. You say, Lord, help him, amen? But I'm going to do that uh, this morning because pastor's back on next Sunday, so I only get the one shot. As, as I read this chapter, oftentimes there's mention of, of your father, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is not Belshazzar's father. But in royalty, one king would be referred to the other kings, even the great Nebuchadnezzar, who was the greatest of the Babylonian kings who reigned for some 43 years and was the one who spent a good amount of time building this great city. But remember, as I read the text, when it's saying your father, Nebuchadnezzar, it's not his biological father, but it's the king who reigned prior to him. There's some other kings in the meantime before this guy's on the scene and his father, Nabonidus. Now, enough in preparing us for the text. I want to read the text. I'll do my best to get through the whole thing without stopping and saying something. And I want you to follow along in the Word of God and listen to the reading of the Word of God like you've never heard it read before. And maybe there's somebody here today that you've never read Daniel chapter 5. That'll be tremendous. So follow along as I read God's Word. Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. And when Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem in order that the king and his nobles, his wives, his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God which was in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives, his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and of bronze and iron and wood and stone. Suddenly, or immediately, we could read, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him and his hip joints went slack and his knees began knocking together. 
And the king called aloud to bring in the conjurers and the Chaldeans and the diviners. And the king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, Any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation, to me will be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as a third in the kingdom. Then all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put... No, it doesn't read that way. But I'm so tempted to read it that way. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. The queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. And the queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, and Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this, everybody say it, in this, whom king named Belshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned and he will declare the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king and the king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is the, one of the exiles from Judah whom my father, the king, brought from Judah? Now, I've heard about you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. And just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you that you're able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you're able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you'll have authority as a third in the kingdom. And Daniel, Daniel answered and said before the king, Keep your gifts for yourself, or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed. Whomever he wished, he spared alive. Whomever he wished, he elevated. And whomever he wished, he humbled when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like a beast. And his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven. Until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over all the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. But you, his son Belshazzar, you've not humbled your heart even though you know all this. 
but you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hand are your life breath and your ways, you have not glorified. Then the hand was sent from him, some of the translations say, sent from his presence. And this inscription was written out. Now this is the inscription that was written out. Mene, mene, tekel, abharsin. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and to the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave orders, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put put a gold necklace around his neck, issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Now there's a number of ways that we can approach this chapter. We could approach it historically. We could do a dozen sermons in this particular text in the chapter. We could talk about all the background of the kings and what was going on in the world all around this particular chapter. We could spend uh, a number of messages talking about this arrogant fool, king, and what a warning, and there's so many warnings in the scriptures for us to take heed from. And we could talk about Daniel because we love him, and he comes on the scene here, man, and he's ready, and he's such a blessing and faithful man. From the time that he's a teen, teens, listen, from the times that he's a teenager brought to Babylon to the end of his years, well up into his 80s. He's there just faithful, 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 serving the God of heaven in various ways before many of these great kings. But I want to approach this chapter a different way this morning and a way that I think is most important. And that is when we come to the Scriptures, the most important thing that we can always ask and we can always look for and we can always remind ourselves is what does this text teach me about God? And that's going to be our focus this morning. What the text teaches us about about God. And for those of you who are visually minded, there's the event, right? Right? And the first thing that I want you to note that this particular chapter, and it teaches us much about God, but the first thing that I believe we cannot, we, 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 we cannot forget about God when we come to the Scriptures and is so vividly displayed right here is this. If you're taking some notes this morning in the bulletin, there's a place to write it in there if you wish. And that is this, that we are reminded in this particular chapter as well as in the book of Daniel, as well as in the scriptures as a whole, that this is God's world. Like, duh, you needed to come here this morning to hear that. Amen? But there are times, there are times in such a 
vivid and dramatic and supernatural way that God uh, breaks into the normal activities of life and radically changes things and reminds us who's on first. Like a universal flood or other events in the scriptures like this one right here when we read this. And in, in, this, in this powerful way, God reminds us that he rules over all the affairs and events and actions and people within his world. We call this the sovereignty of God. In fact, it's even translated that in verse 18 in the New American Standard conveys this particular idea. And if you attend here regularly, there's probably not, not a week that goes by that from the text, Pastor Dave is pointing out to us how God is sovereign in his world because it's all over the Scriptures. And when we think about that particular truth, it's not the fact merely that God is all-powerful, that he is omnipotent, that he's the almighty God and he can do what he wishes in his world. And that's true. And it's not merely the reality that God is omniscient in that he is infinitely aware of all that's taking place everywhere within his world all the time. And that is true likewise. But when we begin to grasp the wonder of his sovereignty, it is the idea that he rules, he governs, he ordains, he controls everything that comes to pass in his world, and in your life, and in the life of this, of this king. Ephesians 1.11 says that God works all things to the counsel of his own will. And many of you like to quote Romans 8.28, do you not? That God works all things together for good to those that love God, to those that are called according to his purpose. And it's true. But it is only true if God is sovereign. Think about it. Only to the degree that he is sovereign and in control will he bring all things unto good in our lives, conforming us more to the image of of his Son for his own glory. Steve Lawson says it this way, As our sovereign Lord, he does always as he pleases, only as he pleases, and all that he pleases. Thus, to say God is sovereign is simply to say that he is God. That he is God. It's so claimed in the Scriptures, so many places, but declared by God through the prophets, like in Isaiah 40 through about 40, chapter 46 of the book of Isaiah In 45, it reads this way. It's on the overhead if you'd like to follow along as I read it declared in the Scriptures. I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I will gird you though you have not, I will gird you though you have not known me that men may know from the rising, from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I'm the Lord who does all these things. Look at the way that he states it in chapter 46. 
verse 8 through verse 11. You probably have these texts marked in your Bible. Remember this and be assured, recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. (laughs) Calling a bird of prey from the east or the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I've planned it, surely I will do it. Sovereignty. Daniel loves this truth. And twice in this chapter, as well as other places in the book of Daniel, he is declaring the fact of this truth by a name that he uses for God that's translated in verse 18 and again at the end of verse 21. And some of our young people have been studying the names of God, and they're going to recognize this name for God that's used in this chapter twice. It is the, it is the name of God in the Hebrew, El Elyon. El Elyon. And El Elyon means the idea of just that, sovereignty. In fact, if you look it up in a Hebrew dictionary, it is the idea of supreme rule, the most high God, how it's translated twice. It is the idea of supreme, supremacy, sovereignty over everything. And scholars of years gone by that thought about this great truth that is expressed here in this chapter and throughout the Bible, thought about this, and they thought hard. How do we articulate this? How do we convey this as it boils down to all the affairs of life? And we have what is called today the confessions or the Westminster Confessions that many people love, and I'm, I'm one of them because these men thought long and hard. How do we How do we convey these great truths? And here is a confession as to the sovereignty of God. You might want to say amen as you just hear this and hear it read. Listen how they expressed it. That God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Can we just say amen? Amen. Try to get your mind around that. And you go, oh, wow, God, supreme over everything, every detail, every action. And then you uh, possibly just jump from one ditch to the other because we tend to go to ditches. And you say, well, I guess, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what I think or what I do. Well, this chapter reminds us of just the fact that it does. Well, let me express it to you this way. Be careful. Though God rules his world and runs his world, you, are, you and I remain both responsible and accountable for our actions. And there is a judgment to come regarding that. So, okay, how should I then, how it should, should this truth impact me? How, what should I do? How, 
how should I live mindfully of God's supreme sovereignty over his world and for my life? How should this impact how I live? Let me use two ways. Let me use two verses to drive this home. Micah 6, 8. You probably have this marked in your Bible if you don't. You really ought to. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk, how everyone, to walk what? With your God. Sovereignty should do what we sang this morning with reference to the coming of Christ and every knee bowing before him. So I was reflecting upon this, the wonder of God and how great that he is and his sovereignty. I I, I was thinking for some reason about a time way back in Deborah and I, early years and and, uh, her Catholic background, and I remember visiting the Catholic Church for various event that was going on. And those who may have come from a Catholic background, you, you may remember that in the Catholic Church, and I remember the first time I saw it, and I thought, what's these benches for? They got those benches in the Catholic Church. And I remember that, oh, you can pull those things down. What for? What for? To sovereignty should make you kneel. And let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. Because if sovereignty should humble you, it should humble you in remembering that when it comes to your life and this world, you are not in control. My plans, my life, my kids, my job, my things. You are not in control. Don't live presumptuously. He is in control. Bow the knee to his sovereignty. Second way I believe that we should respond to his sovereignty is this. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. Now, why do I bring this up? Because the God who is sovereign is good. He is good. So will you remember that whatever he does in your life comes from a good God. And what he does in your life and what he does with your life comes from the hand of an all-wise, in-control, sovereign and good God who is worthy to bend the knee before him and praise him for who he is. This is his world. And oh my, oh my, did this king find out very quickly, who's on first? Somebody has well said that Belshazzar, this king, has the world's record on how quickly you can sober up without coffee. <laughs> Suddenly everything changed, didn't it? Do you know that in your life? Suddenly everything changed. Verse 5, finger of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the back of the hand did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him and his hip joints went slack and his knees began knocking. He is like a little wimping, whimpering puppy. Wow. Second, second way I believe that we can learn about God from this 
chapter and is worth remembering, and that is this second, that God is not mocked. God is not mocked. That's number two if you're taking notes. Galatians 6-7 declares that truth, does it not? It says, be not deceived. Now Paul is telling the Galatians to not be deceived about false prophets and false teaching and a false gospel and all the rest. He says, don't be deceived about this. And then he reminds them, God is not mocked. And then he presents this principle, whatsoever a man sows, that also will he reap. Oh, even severity with reference to what's going on. And the idea of God is not mocked from that word in the New Testament that definitely applies to the event that we read in chapter 5. It is the idea to treat someone or something with contempt. And that's what this king, Belshazzar, was doing with reference to the Most High God. He takes the gold and the silver vessels that we read, the, the goblets from the, the, the holy holy vessels from the temple there in Jerusalem that were taken out of the temple and taken by Nebuchadnezzar and brought, yes, brought to his uh, trophy room, if I can say it that way, representing the items from all of the other uh, gods, uh, representing all of the other gods and nations or peoples that the great Babylonians had taken victory over. He puts it away there, and I believe that Belshazzar does something Nebuchadnezzar never would have done. Then then he takes those items. He has those items brought. And and they're going to drink the wine out of those items. And they're, they're going to give praise to God's deities made by man's hands. And, and, and Belshazzar may have been liquored up, and I believe that he was. And doing so causes you to be stupid and do stupid things. But I believe he knew exactly what he was doing. He knows the history of the events of his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. He knows what has happened to Nebuchadnezzar based upon his, his own pride, of himself lifting himself above the Most High God. Look at the end of chapter 4 with me. Just mindful of that Belshazzar knows what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. It said that uh, Belshazzar was probably about 14 or 15 years old when Nebuchadnezzar died, but he knows his history. And here's, here's Nebuchadnezzar at the end of his life, or prior to it, but the end of the text, record of his life, 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are true and his ways are just. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. And Belshazzar knows this. He also knows this, that in, trans, in interpreting the dream of the great Nebuchadnezzar, that Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar by the enablement of the Most High God that there was going to be a day that the Babylonian Empire would be over. He knew that from the, transla- from the interpretation of the dream in chapter 2 and over there in chapter 
7 and chapter 9, which really comes before historically chapter 5, there are those other interpretations that Daniel has given with reference to the end of the Babylonian kingdom. And this king knows that. So what is he doing by toasting the gods of the Babylonians? Well, let me say it this way. He is in effect saying, you may have humbled that great Nebuchadnezzar, but you are not about to what? Humble me. Hmm. You talk about pride. The first hour, Marshall talked about pride. Thomas Watson gives the best definition of pride, where he says that pride seeks to un-God God. Well, that's what he does. And I kind of think God heard him. What do you think? My, did he hear him. In fact, one writer says it this way. In the final analysis, it does not matter what was going on in Belshazzar's mind. His very act is like spitting in the eye of God. He is not only committing blasphemy, he combines it with idolatry. Here is where his Profanation surpasses that of Nebuchadnezzar. He uses God's holy goblets to toast the lifeless idols of his own religion. He spits in God's eye, as it were, and then he goes over to a statue that he himself has created and expects that lifeless hunk to protect him from what is to come. Wow. No wonder. No wonder. Be humble or be what? Humbled. Yeah, God is not mocked. It seems like there's a lot going on in mocking God in our day. Would you, would you agree with that? Say, whoa, 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 God, you got this thing under control? I got news for you. He is not mocked. The day of judgment will deal with that. Make sure you're not mocking him. Make sure that you live what you profess and not mock him by living a way contrary to what you say that you believe. He is not mocked, and he is the judge of all of all of the earth. And by the way, when Daniel was giving this prophecy, reading the, the, the handwriting on the wall there at this very evening, at the very same time, while those, the Persian army had been outside of the walls of the city, they'd been working. And one of the things that they were doing is they, they were digging and they were diverting the flow of the Euphrates River away from the city of Babylon. So that at this very day, they then were able to come under the walls of those cities that they could not break down, come into the city of Babylon, and end this king's life and this kingdom. God is not mocked. Whatsoever man sow, that will he also reap. And there is a vivid display of that right here in chapter 5. Let me give you a third thing we can learn about God. See, these are hard lessons. Well, let's get to a good one, okay? Third, we can learn about God. That God has his people. God has his people. And in the book of Daniel, Daniel, you see that over and over again. He's got his man, Daniel. I just love that in verse 11. Hey, there's a man in your kingdom who knows God. 
There's a man in your kingdom who has the answers. There's a man in your kingdom who who can tell us what's going on here. Bring in Daniel. Bring in Daniel. Let me tell you about Daniel. Daniel was ready to preach, pray, die, or take an offering at any time. And here he's preaching. This is a great sermon. Bring in Daniel. Daniel comes in and he's ready. I wonder what he's been doing because he hasn't had a position in this administration. Previous in Nebuchadnezzar, he was given great authority. What's going on? Where is he now? I don't know, but it just seems to, to see every time he comes up, we find him available and ready and faithful. Have you ever heard that old saying, the best, of, the best ability is availability? May that be true of us. And so they bring Daniel in, and Daniel says, keep your stuff. By the way, they give it to him at the end, but it only lasted a couple hours. Amen? And he's ready. And he's ready to tell this king what's going on. You get over into chapter 9 of the book of Daniel, and Daniel's in the Scriptures, and he's checking out his history and with reference to the book of Jeremiah. And, and Daniel, in, at this time, because he's in his 80s in this in this chapter 5. And in that chapter, he remembers that there's a 70-year, predicted 70-year captivity. And so Daniel's getting all excited about the fact that there's going to be a time now that these people are going to be able to go back to their land. I don't know of any indication that he got to go there. But where he was planted, my, he was faithful, was he not? Right to the end, love the end of the book where the God of heaven says to Daniel, just go off into your rest. Just go off into your rest. You've been been faithful. I want to ask you two questions before we get to the final thing we can learn about God. God has his people. Have you discovered that? Just just looking at the world. Two questions I want to ask you. He has his people. First question could be the obvious question. Are you one of them? Hey, are you one of them? You say, I know Daniel's God. I've trusted in Jesus Christ as my own Savior. I'm I'm saved and I know it. And and I know I'm part of his plan and his world and he's given us his plan and his word. Number one, I'm, I'm, I'm part of that. I see in the scriptures, you know, as the old saying goes, God plans his work and he works his plan. He's got a people in the Old Testament he calls to be light unto the nations. He's got this this people in in the New Covenant, in the New Testament we read about, like we're reading in the book of Acts, how God has his church. And before Jesus goes off into heaven, he says to his men and to all of us, he says, you shall be my witnesses. So are you his people? And secondly, I want to ask you uh, this this morning, where has he planted you to bring glory to the Most High God? Because if you are his people and he is in charge of your life, and he is, and you are here to bring glory to him, how's that going on? Where's that going on? How is that happening? Where has he planted you? Say, well, don't call me, Pastor. I'm in school. He's planted you there, then, if you know Christ. Tell me about your work. Where you work. He's planted you there. Over the years, I've had people come to me, and and they say, "Uh, Pastor, I got it going on at work, man. I'm the the only believer. 
pray for me to find a different job. No, I'll pray for you to get your head on straight. You're in a, in a great situation that God has placed you in. Obviously, he wants to really let your light shine right where you're at. This isn't about your job. This is about Jesus Christ. This is about you being a light for him. I remember that when I was uh, working in that foundry, I worked a year and a half in a foundry in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, before we headed off to, to seminary. And, and uh, it was... It was a hard job, and it was a dark job, and I'm a fairly new believer, and I'm meeting people and I'm talking to them and mentioning the Lord, and nobody seems to have any interest, and, and I'm going, why, why am I here? And at the same time, I've got this pocket testament that I'm reading during the lunch break just to fuel my own heart in the midst of what's going on. Now I see God's perfect plan and all of that, but as I'm reading, and I remember reading in the epistles, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and all of a sudden it occurred to me, well, maybe God has me here because I can't find any other believers. Maybe he wants me to be a testimony for him right where he's at. Well, I may be dull, but I ain't stupid, amen? But where has he got you planted? Let me ask you another way. Who's he planted in your life? Family needs the Lord. People, neighbors, God has his people. Have you learned, it just, you just caught it as you meet people and stuff in the area, in the military, in, in uh, the academic world, even in politics. Yes, God can save a politician. Amen? Even in the realm of politics, in all the realms of, of our vocations in our world, God has his people. Are you one of them? Where has he planted you? Daniel knew what he was here for, and he knew who he was here for as his people. One more. One more way that we see God in this chapter. One more. Number four. We see how God is merciful. That seemed to be the theme today. Certainly was the theme, and the, we didn't really time it that way for the first hour in the marriage class. But oh my, our God... He, he has his people, and he is merciful. Psalm 145, verse 8. Would you read with me? The Lord is gracious and slow to anger and great in loving kindness. I love the way Paul expresses it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He talks about the God of all comfort. And he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. Reminded in the class this morning, rich in mercy in Ephesians chapter 2. Oh, God was merciful with this king. How can I say that this morning? Well, I think it's obvious, wasn't it? He knew of Daniel. He knew of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, we read twice in the text. Chapter 5, verse 14, I've heard about you. Verse 16, but I have heard about you. And then look in verse 22 with me. Verse 22. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all of this. All of this. All that he knew, all that he heard, was the mercy of God in his life. He 
could have learned from Nebuchadnezzar and humbled his own heart, but he hardened it. But he hardened it. Man, I pray there's nobody here like that today. Somebody here today that you say, I've heard and I've heard it and I've heard it. I've been to the I've been to the funerals and I hear people quote John 14, 6, Jesus the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes by the but the Father, through the Father, but through me. People like that that I've met. I've heard and I've heard and I've heard and heard. They are operating under the mercy of God. And the grace of God. One definition given in a theology book of mercy is this. Mercy is God's benevolent, God's benevolent goodness toward those in a pitiful or miserable condition. (laughs) We sang this morning at the cross, for such a worm as I, God is merciful, all of which was his mercy in this man's life who would not respond. Mercy and grace is held out to you right now if you've never trusted him. Humble your heart before him today and call upon him to save you. What an amazing thing. We confess with our mouth Jesus as Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. You will be saved. That's God's promise that he would do such a thing. Well, let me ask you this morning, would you agree with me that Daniel was a godly man? A little more enthusiasm on that. Would you agree that Daniel is a godly man? Mm Mm-hmm. Would you agree with me that with the example of David and call to us and being God's kind of people, he wants us to be a godly people? How do we be a godly people if we don't have high and great and right thoughts about our God? He is sovereign. In your life and all that's going on, he is not mocked. He has his people, and he is merciful And he's merciful at the cross for sinners. Amen? Bow in prayer with me, would you please? Father, thank you that I can address you that way through your son. You are great. You are in control, and you are good. You are wise. You are merciful. We bow the knee before you. We acknowledge that you do. You do rule your world in justice and righteousness and holiness. Nothing is out of control. There are no accidents for the believer We understand the foolishness of our mistakes, the rebellion of our sin. Even in all of that, God, even in all of that, you are working and working good. Supreme work that you've done for us, we have remembered in the Lord's Supper, and we reflected upon the wonder of a loving God who would send his Son as a sacrifice for sinners. We praise you for that. And as we remember that you are the sovereign God, may we live our lives with one knee bended, being even able to say it's well with our souls because we are right with you through your Son.
And we thank you for these things and pray them in Christ's name. And together all of his people would say, Amen. Amen.